Have you ever had a time in your life, maybe it was with a close friend, a spouse, more than likely if you've had kids, you've had these moments where something happens and your kid does something wrong and you respond in a way that's an overreaction? Have you guys ever done that? Sometimes that overreaction is is the wrong, completely wrong reaction, and you may have done it because, you know, what, what was wrong actually put fear in you. Your kid stepped into the street, and instead of rescuing them out of the street, you know, you get mad at them because they stepped in the street, and you, you go over the top, and really it's not anger, it's fear, but it's fear being expressed with anger, and so you're going crazy over them putting their lives in danger, Right? Uh, that's, that's probably a soft example. I'm sure there's lots of other examples. Uh, I grew up with a friend that when uh, I would be out there, and this is with me there, so I can't imagine without other people being there what it would have been like. And if we did something wrong, you would see tools go flying, screaming and cussing and, and over-the-top reaction. Now, an hour later, he might be as cool as could be. But in that moment, like, he was outrageous and over the top, and it put a fear inside of you. I don't know what kind of fathers you had, but we're all imperfect. If I could tell on myself, and I will, because hopefully I don't get fired for something that took place 10, 15 years ago, somewhere back there. Uh, but I remember times as a father where I wanted to be a great Christian father, and yet my uh, flesh, my anger would sometimes rise to the surface. I remember one time the girls were in their bedroom. I don't know what they were fighting about. So my wife got involved, and they were fighting with each other, and then they began to fight with their mom. Do you guys ever deal with that? Where your kids, they're fighting, then a parent tries to get involved, and then like all of a sudden that fight's solved, but now they're fighting with their parent, and there's this big argument going on, and eventually I got tired of it, and I went in there to defend mom, and I start getting mad, and pretty soon I'm hucking their laptops across the room. <laughs> I just want to be honest with y'all. And I was probably pastor at that point. And I blow up, literally blow up. And then I leave, I come back, and guess what? They're all getting along. <laughs> guess who's the bad guy now? I came up with a motto that after that, sometimes you got to blow stuff up before you can start putting it back together. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. Don't miss it. I'm saying that there's, in probably most of us, times where we've overreacted in very inappropriate ways. And that's the nature of, of who we are to some degree. But we have a God that is perfect in heaven. And as we approach the scriptures that we've been in for a few weeks now in the book of Galatians, what we've seen is the Apostle Paul, who has planted these churches in the area of Galatia, in the book of Galatians, has written a letter to them. You have to understand that here's a man who risked his life to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a group of people. Like, you don't even understand what it means for him to have brought the good news there because it was in Galatia that he was actually persecuted so bad that in the book of Acts, it describes the people that, persecuting, that persecuted him as having left him for dead. They literally thought they beat him bad enough that he was going to die. He gave his all for this people. And then he brings them the news of Jesus, and he sees some of them start to receive Christ into their lives, and they began to gather around in different areas of Galatia and form churches, and he would minister his heart to them, minister the, the Father's heart to them, minister the gospel to them. They had good news received and a joy that was overwhelming inside of them, only to find out after he would leave that there was people who were once of his people, Jewish believers, that came in and tried to change what he had taught them. 
And so you see this man as he's written this letter to them, and we've seen this throughout the writings so far. It is considered the most personable letter that Paul has written to a church, and it's partly because of probably what he gave for these people to bring them the good news, that he views them as his own family. These are kids of his, and he's so hurt by the fact that they would return back or even be tempted to return back to a way that he once left. And so in these first few chapters, you've seen him approach bringing correction into their lives in several different ways. Now, what I want to try and get across to you today is is whatever the Lord put in me for today. I don't know where you're at. I'm going to give a list of things which I don't normally do. But I want you to pray about what God wants to speak to your heart through this. Because this could be addressing the situation where you're at in life right now in your relationship with God. And this is God's heart for you. This could be you in a relationship with your own kids or maybe a close relationship, something like that, in the way that God wants us to bring truth in love. Now, Paul, so far, it appears, hasn't necessarily brought truth in love. He's brought truth, and he does bring truth in love as a whole. What we got to be cautious about is that God's word is God's word, right? God's word is truth, and in that truth, it shows that a lot of God's people, the heroes of the faith even, made poor choices. The truth about the validity of God's word is it does not avoid the negative things about God's people. Like if they wanted to puff up Christianity to make it look really super good, they would have eliminated all the bad stuff, right? But they didn't. They included it. And so that doesn't mean that Paul, as the apostle of Christ, and, you know, the one who has written two-thirds of the Bible and spread gospel throughout all of the new world in his time frame, was a perfect person. Because he wasn't. And we sometimes have this, this issue with exalting him to a level that Jesus is on, and he's not Jesus. I believe that in this letter, what we'll see is that so far, he's presented to them the facts, I don't know if anybody has ever gotten in trouble before or you've done this to somebody else that that you think what they've done is wrong and your response to them is to flip out a bunch of facts. Anybody ever have that? Like, you know this, 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 and this? Now, come on. Let me put it in your terms if you've been married. I do the laundry. I do the dishes. I go to work during the week just like you do. Now, I've never heard this from my wife. I've seen it on TV. Like, (laughs) promise you. One spouse or the other could get ticked off, and they could give you a list of facts of what they do in the house, right? And it can be in multiple relationships where all of a sudden the response and maybe even the overreaction is that list of facts. Here's the facts. And what we've seen so far is Paul has pulled out the facts to his children in the faith, if you would. And he's given some great facts, and we've studied those facts, and they are so important that we know those facts. But he's also looked at them, and he said a couple different times how mad he is. And in one section, he even called them, oh, foolish Galatians. Now, that's the English that has been tamed to cover what he really called them. Because in the original language, he called them idiots. And so, when you're talking to your kids, how good is it that you would call your kids idiots? It's easy when it's pointed at somebody else. Right? You may not realize this, but Paul was a little bit over the top in some areas of his response to the Galatians. But he comes to a place in the middle of the letter where I believe he's probably calmed down a little bit. And he begins to feel the love that he has for these people come rushing to the top. Because you have to understand, this isn't a people that he doesn't know. He knows their names. He has eaten with them. He has laughed with them. He has cried with them, right? He has given them this valiant theologian response. He's come to them, I believe, with teary eyes now. Something's welling up, and it's his care for the people. I believe it's the tenderness of a father. And so what we see in chapter 4, is he actually makes an adjustment in the approach 
of how he's dealing with the wrongs of the Galatians. So turn to Galatians chapter 4 this morning. Now some of you might think, I thought we did chapter 4 last week. We did, but I skipped the middle for today. Because I wanted us to see the heart of a father, the tenderness of a father, and to see it done correctly. And so I don't know who this word is for this morning. It's hopefully for all of us in some way, shape, or form. But I'm going to go through what I believe that Paul was bringing out in this middle section of verses, verses 8 through 20 of chapter 4. Now, if you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the overhead above us. But I really want us to just look at the tenderness. Everybody say the tenderness of a father. It's the truth in love. Number one, he's not afraid, obviously, to address what they've done wrong. I think that that's important for us to see because sometimes in a parent's overreaction, and this message isn't just a parent's, or, you know, your overreaction to any situation in life is that not only will we throw out a list of facts, not only will we sometimes go over the top and start using names that we should not use, like Paul did, but that it's important when you're really trying to speak truth in love, bringing correction to somebody, that you point out specifically what the wrong is. Because how many times do you know of that you get so upset in the moment that you may just jump right to punishment, that you might just jump to, and I'm not just talking about, again, our familial relationship, our family's relationship, but in even a friendship, like your response is to cut it off immediately. You don't want to address the wrong that they did because then that would stir something up. You don't want to address the wrong with, with somebody else, a friend, or a wrong with your spouse even at times, and so you bury the truth instead of address the truth in love. Paul's very clear to them the things that were wrong. He says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, but then indeed, and there's also something in this that I want you to understand. He's not just addressing what they've done wrong, but in addressing what they've done wrong, he's addressing who they really are. He says, indeed, when you did not know God, this is who you were, you served those which by nature are not gods. This is who you used to be, and this is really how dumb it was, is that at one time you were pagans, right? They, they more than likely worshipped false gods, several gods. The god of the trees, the god of the wind, the god of the earth, the god of the, you know, whatever, the sea, the god of fertility, the god of, you name it. They worshipped all of these gods. And Paul, he doesn't even want to label them as gods because that would be putting an inappropriate name on what they are. Because that was not their nature. They did not have the nature of God. And so he's trying to bring that about. Here's where your thinking used to be. You used to worship something that you thought was the God of the wind. And it's not even a God. It doesn't have the nature of God. That's dumb. They're not gods. They're demons. And he brings that out in a couple verses later when he talks about the order of the world. Because if you take that word back to what it originally means, it also includes the demonic of the world. And so he's trying to express to them, that's who you were. That's not who you are now. You're no longer six. You're 26, right? You're no longer whatever. You're an adult now. You're no longer, you know, a beginner, but you're somebody who should know better now. That's what he's trying to get across to them. That's who you were, but it is not who you are now. And he goes on and he says in verse 9, and I touched on this last week, but now after you have known God, this is after the fact, or rather are known by God. Everybody say known by God. How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? If you take the word for elements, it's the principles of the world, the order of the world, which includes material things in the world, the ways of the world, which are directed by Satan, and also includes the demonic of the world. Why would you turn back to the demonic of the world? 
Because that's what it is. And we don't want to recognize that sometimes as Christians when we're turning back to something that we shouldn't be turning to. But all things worldly are demonic. And so he's addressing the fact that he's puzzled by how they would turn back to them. You desire again to be in bondage. And then he says in verse 10 specifically, you're observing days and months and seasons and years. They're living by the law thinking that it's going to make them more righteous, put them in better favor with God. And so he's made it clear that these people that he's speaking to right now are Christians. Now, I touched on this last week, but I believe I want to touch on it again this Sunday because it's such an important fact for us to know. What does it mean to believe in God? Ed gave a great response a couple weeks ago when he said that means to trust that God will do what he says he's going to do. But to add to that, not only in trusting that God has said he'll do what he'll do, but what Paul's saying is to believe in God is not just to know God, but to be known by God. And there is a huge difference between the two. A lot of people will say that they believe in God right? That they know who God is. But how many can say God knows me? Because we have a relationship with each other. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Yes, I said this last Sunday. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is talking about the end days. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus is speaking, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't get away from the fact that he's talking about a people who have come to him because they know him. They know that he's the Lord. They know that he's the master of all. They know that he's the one that, it is, that is in control. They know him by his name and by who he is, that he is the Lord of life. But he, they say, have we not done all these things in your name, prophesied, cast out demons, done many wonders in your name? Like we've even worked for you. They know him and they've done good things, good intentions, even right things in his name. But Jesus looks to them and he declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That should be one of the most fearsome verses in the Bible to Christians. Lord, 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 we know him. We even do good things. We might even go to church. We might serve in the church. We might do good things out in the world in the name of the Lord. But then in the end, you still get rejected. And why rejected? For two reasons he gives. Number one, it's lawlessness. And he says in these verses, those who, who know me obey my father. That's, and then he does say at the end, the lawlessness aspect, not that they didn't follow the law. You might think, well, that's contradictory to what we've been studying in the book of Galatians. No, it's not. What he's talking about is a people who their heart is not pointed towards him, that understand that through the grace of God that's been given to us, that God brings a change in, where, in our lives that helps us to live righteously, right ways that God wants us to live, not that we can do things on our own effort by following a bunch of rules that have been laid out before us. Is your heart pointed at him enough that you respect and reflect his ways? That fear of God is that idea of having a respect for God, for who he is, and that you honor that in reflecting his ways. It's not just believing. James 2.19, James writes to the church, you, you believe that there is one God. That's great that you believe that. You do well. But even the demons believe. And they tremble. Like there's supposed to be a healthy respect for who God is. An honor for who he is in life. The demons know Jesus better than some people who proclaim to be Christians. They know Jesus better than any Christian who does not have the fear of the Lord in their lives. Because they understand who he really is. And they tremble 
at who he is. But that doesn't mean just because they believe in him, know him well enough that they fear him, that they have a heart for him. It doesn't mean that they necessarily have a heart just because they know who he is and they have a fear of him. So what's the evidence of the second reason? Number two, that Jesus plain simply says, I don't know you, right? There's a huge difference between saying that you believe in God and God knowing you. Now, I don't know, probably everybody here at one time or another, you've run into somebody at the grocery store who starts talking to you, and you talk back, right? You run into them, they start talking to you, you talk back to them, and then you walk away, and you either think to yourself or you're with somebody, you're like, who was that? My wife and I, it happens to us quite frequently. We're like, is that somebody we went to school with? Somebody that came through the coffee stand? Somebody that's been to church? We had a conversation, and we definitely wanted to portray that we knew who they were through conversation. We portrayed that we knew who they were through having a conversation, but we really didn't know who they were. Because there's a difference between knowing, right, who somebody is and really knowing that person. And that's the depth of intimacy that Paul is using in this word here. Yes, you say that you know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? Does he intimately know you? Does he know you because you've had a couple of conversations with him? Because you've cried out to him when you're desperate? Because you've used him as the wishing well of hope? Or does he know you because you come and talk to him and you have this personal relationship with him? You know you can get him on the phone 24-7 and, and so you share your heart with him. And he, he shares his heart with you. That's the other aspect of this. If you know somebody, it's a two-way communication. You talk to them, you share deep things with them, and they share deep things back with you. They speak truth into your life. And so the real question when it comes to belief, when it's saying, I believe in God, the real question should be, yes, but does God father you? Does he father you? Because most of the time, we will ignore anything that we don't like about God. And really what he's wanting to do through his word and his ways is to be the father of us. And submitting to him is that, that fatherly person in our life, the perfect father, which means that you hear his word, that you hear it, you honor it, you respect it, and then you reflect it in life. And this is the issue that Paul has with his children in the faith. The apostle Paul said, like, you Gentiles, listen, that's who you were, but you know God and God knows you. You have a real relationship with him. And so here's where I have the issue that even with that kind of relationship, that you're still making these wrong choices, that you're choosing sin. Listen, what you've done is I brought the good news to you and you were literally set free from the chains, from bondage in your life. But now in your freedom, I'm free, I'm free. That's good news. Look what Jesus has done for me. Poet and didn't know it. And then they go back and they say, okay, now put the chains back on my hands. Put the chains back on my feet. Chain me up. That's what they're doing. Why in the world would you, who has a relationship with God and God knows you, want to go back into the cha same chains that once bound you? Why would you do the same things that will put you back in prison where you once were? You've been given this freedom to live, and now you're saying, 
I'm wanting to go back into chains. Put me back in prison. And for Paul, when you're looking at it from that perspective, I gave my life to set you free. And now you're wanting to go back into those same chains? You're doing the same things that will put you back into prison? Serving the same gods that you once served, but in a different way? Can you understand his frustrations? Why he would be mad at them? Why he may overreact? You know how frustrating it can be to try and help somebody take three steps forward and then they take one step back? And that's if, if you're lucky because they might take two steps back or they might take three steps back or they might t- take four steps back and they just keep on going backwards instead of forwards and you're trying to pull them forward. You're trying to bring them the facts. You're trying to do everything you can in your flesh, in your mind to help prod them to move forward. So you might understand why Paul was a little upset that he scolded them, called them idiots, and goes over the top. But what he's trying to get them to understand right here is that that's not who they are. It's maybe who they were. But in bringing the correction of what they're doing wrong, I want you guys to understand this is what's wrong with your actions but this is not who you are. Do you guys hear the difference? This is what's wrong with your actions. Here's a bunch of facts to back why what you've done wrong is wrong. Or because you're an idiot. Versus, here's what you've done wrong, and I want you to know the reflection of a tender father's heart is that this is not who you are. What I believe, this is a word that I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart before I came up here to speak, is that what Paul's trying to get them to understand right now in their tendency to want to go back into chains, to go back into bondage, their struggle with choosing what is right versus what is wrong or what is right in man's eyes, is he's trying to get them to keep believing Like maybe he brought them truth and they saw that truth and they had joy in that truth, but then things started coming into their life. Life started happening. Paul was no longer there to guide them and direct them. Other people started coming in and dropping whispers of things that aren't necessarily true but sound good into their ears. And Paul's trying to say, listen, it's not who you are. Keep believing. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care who you were. I know that you know that you know the truth of who God is and God knows you. I want you to keep believing. Keep believing. And that's a word for somebody this morning. I don't know who it is, but I believe that God is saying to you, keep believing because you've been on the cusp of wanting to go back into old ways. Maybe they are not the exact same, they're different, but they're still putting you back into chains and back into bondage. And God is saying no to you this morning. Listen, I want you to know that's not who you are. Who you are is who you are when you came to me, when I was deposited into your life, when I set you free. Who you are is a child of God. And you don't have to go back into those ways. You do need to keep believing. And what does it mean to keep believing? It means to have that pure relationship with him where you share things with him and you listen to him. And then you reflect what it is that he speaks to your heart. Everybody say, keep believing. So he's addressed their wrong choices. He's encouraging them. That's not who you are. Keep believing. And then he expresses his concern as to why. He says in verse 11, I am afraid for you. I'm afraid for you. Lest I've labored in vain for all that we've done to help raise you up, to help train you up, to to teach you these ways. That it's all for naught. I literally am worried. I, I have a care about you. That the things that you're choosing right now are not the paths that you were taught to go by. You're moving in a different direction than what you were taught. And you're moving in a direction that I don't want you to regret 
someday. Continue in the things that you know to be true. In verse 2, all right, not the, number 2, in verse 12, after encouraging them to continue in that direction, he relates to them. And he says, brethren, I urge you to become like me. Just pause right there. He says, for I became like you. What's he referencing? The Galatians at one time, they didn't follow the the laws of the Jews because they weren't Jews, right? And so there was a freedom from the law, even though they were tied up in bondage. And Paul says, I became like you and that I no longer am bound by the law. And he says, I want you to, to follow after me. And so in saying, I want you to follow after me, what's he really saying to them? He's saying, listen, I've been down the road that you're going down right now. You guys may forget that I wasn't always the great Paul, the apostle, this glamorous Christian that's writing these letters to you, that I once lived the life that you're now moving towards, that it's not what you think it is. I've been down the road. It's not a good road, and it's only going to bring you back into bondage in life which isn't what the Father wants for you. I want you to follow after me, which I chose the path of not being bound by the law anymore because Christ came to set me free. Don't be like the old me, be like the new me, right? Because if the old me would have been good enough, then he never would have chosen Christ and went into following after Christ. I have you guys ever had somebody like come up to you and start talking to you? They know that you might be a Christian now, but they probably view you as a fuddy-duddy. And then they start talking about your past and who you once were, and they glamorize your past. No? Well, if you become a Christian in the same town that you were a hellion in, it happens. And so they want to glorify who you once were over who you are now. And that's exactly what the Galatians were doing. We're going back into this, what Paul once was, versus who he is now. And he's saying, no, don't go down that road. Like, that was part of my testimony. But the rest of my testimony is that I have overcome because of Christ's blood that was shed to set me free. I think it's important for us to understand that when we're talking to people in difficult conversations, not only do you point out what's wrong, but you're concerned for them and that you have the ability to relate to them. And that's what Paul is doing right here. He's relating to them. I know where you're at. I understand where you're at. But I also know this, that Jesus came to set you free from that. Jesus came to help you overcome that. Number three, he tells them this hasn't affected our relationship with each other. When he says, you have not injured me at all. What does that mean? In English, like, what you've done hasn't hurt me right? It doesn't affect my relationship with you. This is about my heart toward you. I'm not bitter towards you. I don't hate you now. I want you to know that I still love you and I want the best for you. Where the challenge might be is that Paul has used some pretty strong words with the Galatians. It'd be easy for them to look at him as being bitter, as being angry, as being upset at them, as as not liking them anymore, or as separating from the relationship because of the language that he's used toward them, right? That Paul's the one that's pulling away or pushing them away or separating from them, and he's wanting them to know, no, this this isn't because you've hurt me. I still love you and care about you. There's no bitterness in me. What I want for you is the best for you. I love you regardless. That's important for people to hear. I love you regardless. However, there is a right way. And so in expressing his relationship that he loves them no matter what, as he brings up that relationship, watch what he does next. He transitions them into a remembrance of the good times in their relationship. Remember, this is key to relationships that we have with people that are tough conversations. He says, you remember 
what it was like in the beginning. In verse 13, he says, you know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. Like, we don't know what took place in Paul's life, but he had some sort of sickness that caused him to be stuck in Galatia. And he began to preach the good news to the people there while he was sick. In verse 14, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know what he was sick from, and sometimes that's made a deal by theologians. Like, it could have been malaria, because he was in an area that was uh, close to sea level, and people, I guess, had malaria back then. It could have been eye problems. A lot of people relate to eye problems because of what he says in the next few verses. It very well could have been the beatings that he took, because he was left for dead. Nevertheless, it's so bad, whatever it was, that he was dealing with, that he thought these people who really don't even know who he is uh, were amazing because they could have despised him for what it was. They could have shamed him for what it was, but they overlooked what might have been the cultural shame. And instead, they ministered to him. They ministered to his physical health, and he ministered to their spiritual health. And so in that, he's saying, you remember how good you treated me back then. For no reason, you could have rejected me, but for no reason you looked at me. That's the relationship we had when I came to you. I was on my deathbed and you loved me enough that you treated me like an angel. Not just like an angel, but as if Jesus was here himself. How good of a treatment is that? That shows that you once had that heart, that you once had that care, that you once had that love. He's reminding them of the feelings they had, of the actions that backed those feelings. He's reminding them about the good things of that relationship. I think it's an important point to understand when we're speaking into somebody's life in a difficult conversation, that when you're bringing truth to them, it's important to remember, like, listen, I've been there before. And this does not affect how much I love you, but do you remember how great of a relationship we had at one time? How good things were? Not only is he describing the relationship to them, but in the middle of describing the goodness of the relationship to help them remember, he injects them into the memory. It's not just good enough for you to hear about our relationship from my words, but you remember? And he says in verse 15, what then was the blessing that you enjoyed? Like, you know that you had that love for me. You know that you cared about me. So what was, here's the memory. Now, what was it in our relationship in the beginning that you enjoyed? What was it that brought you pleasure? What was it that made you blessed in our relationship, and he tries to inject them into the memory of their relationship to try and bring those feelings back out again so that he can stir up their hearts, that he can stir up those good things about their relationship once again. And then as he asks them that question to cause them to pause and think about the relationship they once had and how they felt about that relationship and the joy that they once had, he asks them now, what happened to that joy? What is the incident that caused you to no longer feel that same way toward me? He says, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That's how much joy they had for him. They would have done anything for him. So what happened to that joy? What was it that brought you that blessings and what happened to it? Do you know that I believe joy is one of the first things to go in a relationship? That when it comes to joy and even our relationship with the Lord, number one, that worldliness robs that joy from us. The majority here, if I gave you opportunity, could probably express that you found joy in the Lord when you came to the Lord, whenever that was. That you found joy in him over the years. 
you remember those good times, those exciting times where you just were so expressive that you couldn't help but share with people, that you were excited about how fun it was to follow after God and and how good he was in your life and the blessings he brought to you and how grateful you were for what he has done for you, is doing for you, and will do for you. But then you start to go back into the chains and back into the bondage and those things that are but pleasurable for a season, and you will see immediately that that joy starts to get robbed. And it's not just back into areas of sin, but into legalism, which is what Paul's describing here. Because what happens is a lot of times people will come to the Lord and they'll have this excitement in them, right? And this is where we got to be cautious. It can happen to new believers and it can happen to older believers because we have this tendency to want to become more religious as time goes on, more legalistic. It has to happen this way. It's got to go this way. I have these memories of how God worked in my life. And so because of these memories, I think that it should be happening that way in everybody else's life too. And so I give no room for God to move any other way in somebody else's life that doesn't make sense because it didn't, it it is not the way that it happened to me. And so we start applying these rules and these laws, whether we want to admit it or not, that they're judgmental of other people. And so in applying and living by that same law, that same bondage in our lives, that we start to lose joy. Just recently, I remember uh, somebody had come to the Lord and how excited they were all the time, but immediately, the way that God was moving in their life, they started projecting that on other people. Well, why aren't they doing this? Well, why are they doing that? Well, I don't understand. Well, they're not living up to what they should be living up. And all of a sudden, they started becoming very legalistic. And what did you see? The joy that was once there began to fade away very quickly. You ever go to a fundamentalist church, and I'm not just picking on all of them in general, and you see the joy amongst that? No, they're so angry at everybody all the time. You're all going to hell. And just constantly upset. Like, where is the joy in your salvation? Because you've become legalistic and judgmental in life. And that's what he's trying to bring across to them. They're, go, they're going back to the law and they're, lose, they're losing, sorry, their joy in their relationship. And so he says in the next verse, 16, how have you changed in your relationship? He says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So Paul's trying to bring them the truth, and now he's bringing them the truth and love, and he wants to know from them. You remember our relationship. You remember the good things that brought you joy. What happened to that joy? And have I become the enemy for simply telling you the truth? Like, listen, has your relationship changed? Because the relationship Paul had with them hasn't changed. He made that clear. I'm not injured at all. I'm not hurt at all. I still love you and want the best for you. But how has your relationship with me changed? Because it seems like I've become your enemy right now. And here's the interesting thing. They once loved him because he preached the good news to them. When they liked him, they treated him like Jesus. But when he said things they didn't want to hear, they turned on him. When the truth comes that you don't want to hear, you have a tendency to start to reject. We know this, and we should all give grace for this, that the truth hurts. I don't care who you are. The truth hurts, and we should give grace for the fact that sometimes it takes people a while to work through that hurt before they will acknowledge at times that what was said to them is true. But in the midst of working through it, sometimes that hurt will lead to rejection. And you will feel rejected in bringing that truth to somebody. It's just like when you scold your kids, what often happens. Sometimes, I don't know if you guys had kids like this. I didn't, but I know I've seen it where they're like, you know what, I hate you. You know, their immediate response as a little child because you corrected them and brought correction into their life is, I hate you. I don't love you anymore. You're, or whatever they want to say. You know, you're not my mom. You're not my dad. Whatever it might be, they say stupid things like that. And then that, that little, you know, five and six-year-old attitude doesn't change when you're older. 
you will start to feel those same things coming out of you. I don't like you, that, you know, whatever it might be. And there's a rejection that takes place. But with truth and love, what we need to understand is that we give grace in that because we know that truth can hurt and that in that hurt, there is sometimes a rejection that comes forth. I don't know if you've ever been corrected like that, but that's how you will often feel. Years ago, uh, and with our previous pastor here at this church on the other side, he had asked me to preach one time while he was gone. It was a midweek service. And I was preaching on a certain topic, and during that service, back then, we were really a little crazier than we are today. And, and so, like, uh, there was things that went on in that service. Uh, I, I don't even know. Like, I interrupted the service during worship several times like to encourage people to really throw their hearts out there and worship the Lord. Uh, there was a lady that started dancing around the outside and flicking water on people. And little to my knowledge, it didn't bother me. It cooled me off. <laughs> but for other people, they did not like what took place. And so when our pastor came back, we were at a board meeting, and he brings up the service, and I got scolded for not having more control over what took place in that service. And so in the moment, I took it as truth. Okay, I guess, I guess that, you know, I should have more control in the service, not allow that things, those things, kind of things to happen. And maybe it was beyond what I thought was crazy. Uh, I don't know. But then I went home and, you know, the enemy starts twisting in your head and I can tell you for the next, like, few months, probably about three months, I was grew bitter and bitter and bitter and bitter, and I pulled away. That relationship didn't change because of the person that spoke truth into my life. That relationship changed because what I received, I allowed to start to pull me away. I'm the one that changed. And then eventually, I remember spending some time in worship, and God had to speak correction into my heart because of the way that I was responding, the way I was acting, and the way that I cut my pastor off from me because of him trying to speak truth into my life. And so that's what happens. And we need to allow each other to have that grace for each other when truth is spoken. People will be rejected. And if you've ever been rejected, that's, you're in great company. Because you can look at people like the prophet Jeremiah. He's rejected by the people. Almost every Old Testament prophet was rejected by the people. You can look at Jesus and how he was rejected for speaking truth into the people. You can look at every one of his disciples but the apostle John who was crucified, who, who were put to death, martyred for their faith. You see Paul is talking about this. And you can speak the truth and even truth and love and still be rejected. But what we have to understand is the importance of truth and truth in love. But on the opposite side of that, when you're receiving truth in love, Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, right? What does that mean? That if you have a real friend, they will speak truth into your life. And it should be the glue of that friendship that holds you together. And that because of the glue of the friendship, the, the unity, the koinonia, that you will allow that truth to sink in and it's still a wound, but it's not killing you. It's there to help you. And that means that you have a faithful friend. But if you have a friend that just kisses your cheeks all the time, what good does that do in your life? So it's important. Paul is given the timely truth spoken in love. And we have to understand it's not punishment, but it's truly love when somebody speaks that truth. Okay, I'm going to try and whip through these next few. Then he goes on to now look at this. Look at where you're at and who you're hanging out with. Have you guys ever heard that before? Who do you spend time with? Who are you hanging out with? Verse 17, these people, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. They want to cut you off from everybody else, from the Apostle Paul, from all those, those good people, and they want to exclude you from it, and they're courting you to make you feel good about it. So what he's saying is that all these Judaizers came into the church, and they're false teachers with big campaign promises. 
And in their big campaign promises, what are they doing? They're courting you. And why do we fall for big campaign promises? Because it feels good to be courted. That means that they're pursuing after you. And we all like to be pursued to some extent, right? It makes us feel good. It makes us feel cared for. It makes us feel like we're being heard. It makes us feel like somebody might actually love us, that we're not rejected. And it happens in dating relationships. It happens in our job. It happens when people want you to become a club member. They'll pursue you for whatever reason. But just because somebody's pursuing you and making you feel good, does that really mean that it's the best decision? No, because they have ulterior motives. There's a purpose behind the pursuit, and yet we are prone to accept it because we like to be made to feel good. People either pursue you with a lie, the truth, or they're pursuing you with purpose because they want you to become a part of them because they think you'd be valuable to them for whatever reason it might be. There's a reason behind why they're treating you like that. There's a reason behind it. And so he's trying to remind them, like, listen, just remember, 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul talks to Timothy about there will be a time when believers, believers, those who know God and, and God knows them, they will turn from hearing truth and they will start to seek out, meaning they pursue the relationship, teachers who will make, who will itch their ears. What does that mean? They'll make them feel good. Because people just want to feel good. And so Paul's like reminding them, these guys, these people that you call friends that are pursuing you right now, they have no good intentions. He says they have no good in their pursuit of you. It's for a purpose. And so he wants them to question who it is that they spend their time with. And then the next thing, he affirms what's good in them. This is important in a difficult conversation. But it is good to be zealous in good things always, and not only when I am present with you. So right now, as we approach the second to last point, what's Paul saying? I believe that he's putting that positive bun back on the sandwich of hard conversation. You guys know, positive, negative, positive when you're talking to somebody. And so he starts putting on that positive again, and he wants to remind them, listen, you have a good attitude. You're zealous. You're even zealous for the Lord, but your zealousness is pointed in the wrong direction. It's good to be zealous, but to be zealous for good things and to be zealous for good things always. That's always good for you to be zealous for those things. But right now in your zealousy, it's pointed in the wrong direction. You guys ever known people like that? I'm not just talking in the church. Like they may be really good at something, but they're really good at something that's not good for them. And what they're good at is pointed in the wrong direction. It's passion misplaced. It's zeal for bad things. It's outspoken for those things that are wrong. You are bold, but you're not bold for Christ. You're bold for those things that are negative. You're bold for those things that are bad. That you may be happy, the happiest person in the world. But, you, but listen, it could be happy when everybody else is supposed to be sad. Or you're sad when really you should be happy. Or you're loud when you really should be quiet. Does that make sense? You have an, a right attitude, but a right attitude in the wrong time, in the wrong way, in the wrong direction. But he's trying to point out to them, listen, there's still good in you that you are zealous. Now just get it pointed back into the right direction. And then he closes with this in these verses. He affirms his love. He says in verse 19, my little children for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, meaning he's, he's not giving up because he's going to labor again until Christ is formed in them. Now, listen, does that mean they're not saved? No, he already said that they were saved, that they know God and they're known by God. What he's trying to say is, listen, we got to get you past this little baby place that you're in right now. Your infant reflecting infant knowledge. 
but Christ must be formed inside of you. And he says in verse 20, I so much just want to be with you. I'd like to be present with you right now. I'd like to change my tone and not come across as so harsh, but I do have doubts about you, meaning he's perplexed about what's going on in their life and the choices that they are making. What I want you to hear from Paul right now, and I think this is so important from us to anybody that we speak correction to and anybody that's speaking correction into us is that a tenderly fathered heart, when you're doing this, is that the point is you care enough about the person, all you want to do is see Christ formed in them. Do you hear me? When you're a Christian, all you should care about is Christ being formed in somebody. Like, I'm not approaching you with truth with an agenda right now. You may feel like I have an agenda, but the truth is, all I care about is Jesus Christ being reflected from your life. You may think that I'm being really mean right now, but all I really care about is that Jesus Christ is formed in your life. When it's parents to our children who don't follow after the Lord and we speak into their lives, that really should come from a place like, I'm glad that you're doing great in college and getting good grades or that you are doing well in your job and you're, you're successful. But the truth is, I don't really care so much about that as I do about the spiritual aspect of your life. All I really want is to see Christ formed in you because what you're doing right now is not who you are. You know Jesus. The only intent we have for bringing truth into somebody's life, the only intent should be that we want to see Jesus Christ formed in somebody's life. No judgment, no ill intention. We're not misappropriating God's word to, to help manipulate somebody. But all we want to do is see Jesus. I just want to see Jesus in your life. I just want to see you living in that freedom. I want to see you experiencing that freedom. I want to see that joy inside of you again. Now, this morning, there's a lesson to be learned here that comes in our relationship with others, right? Is there a broken relationship in your life right now that maybe you need to deal with? Do you need to tell the truth to somebody who may not want to hear it, and yet you fear their response, their rejection? Are you willing to hear the truth yourself, even if you won't like it? Those are all things we should be contemplating from this message. But the most important lesson to be learned in all of this isn't the lesson of Paul to the Galatians or his relationship with those people or our relationship with others. It's that this is God's word that is written to you and I. And so the real question is, when we look at our relationship with God the Father, are we the Galatians? We may know God and be known by him. That's not the question. But how is our relationship with him? Where have we gone wrong in our relationship? Is there something we need to be honest with him about? And, and we don't want to speak that even though God knows that. Am I willing to hear his truth in my life, or am I trying to push that out right now? Remember, as our Father, it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack, meaning he's not lazy, he's not slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that everybody should come to repentance, continually turning back to him, Number one, he's expressing his concern there. Number two, he relates to you in the fact that he sent his one only son, Jesus Christ. He sent him forth on our behalf that the word would become flesh so that we could have a relation with him. Number three, your issue, believe it or not, doesn't separate you from him. As a child of God, we will always have issues but God is still waiting. He stands there and he's saying, turn back towards me. Number four, remember your relationship with him. Remember how he came to you. Remember the testimonies of the Lord in your life, 
those good times that brought you those joys? What was it that you enjoyed? And what has happened to that joy? Number seven, have you changed in the relationship? Because God doesn't change, but sometimes we change. Number eight, who you hanging out with? Is it with him? Number nine, affirming what is good. He says, listen, to affirm what is good, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything that is praiseworthy, when you sit there and your mind is going in a million places and the enemy's trying to spin what's going on and trying to tell you what is good is bad and what is bad is good, and he's trying to get you to go back to those things that are pleasurable for a season or to stir up bitterness inside of you because you haven't seen God come through yet, he's saying, no, you've got to keep believing, and the way that you keep believing is by affirming what is good and put your thoughts on those things. And finally... God affirms his love to us. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters, verse 35. This should say enough. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. God affirms his love in this to his children. Nothing can separate you. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God.